In nomine Patris, et Fidei, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. These are the introductory words for a Roman Catholic Mass. Traditionally, they are issued in ecclesiastical Latin. But since the 1960s, they are more commonly uttered in the native tongue, of whichever place the Mass is held. For example, in the English-speaking world, the Mass begins, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Authorization that Mass be held in languages other than Latin was just one of the many results of the Second Vatican Council, which began in 1962 under the leadership of Pope John XXIII, and concluded in 1965 under the leadership of Pope Paul VI. The Second Vatican Council of 1962 was the 21st of what are called Ecumenical Councils of the Catholic Church, which are large plenary gatherings of bishops, theologians, and various church leaders to discuss doctrine and other important matters. The first such ecumenical council lasted for two and a half months and took place in the year 325 AD. Known as the First Council of Nicaea, it was held in the ancient city of Nicaea, not far from where Constantinople, or Istanbul, is today. Yet, anyone who has read the 15th chapter of Acts knows that church leadership began meeting to discuss and debate doctrine and practices many centuries prior to even this. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a podcast that reveals beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Today, let's talk about the Apostolic Conference that was held in Jerusalem around the year 50 AD. Most people refer to it as the Jerusalem Council. The earliest known gathering of church leaders occurred sometime around the year 50 AD in the city of Jerusalem. The reason for the colloquy can be summed up in one word, circumcision. At the outset, and to understand this Jerusalem council, we must recognize two important features of the church at that time. First, Christianity did not begin as the well-defined religion that it is before us in the current age. In fact, the name Christianity itself would not appear for several centuries. Theology, doctrine, scripture, practices, etc. were unsolidified and up for debate. Consider the 21 ecumenical councils of the following two millennia, great debates between East and West, Catholics and Protestants, countless other divides, and innumerable smaller conferences that have taken place to set forth the rigors of Christianity. At the church's incipients, many of the religion's hallmarks were simply not there yet. The first church leaders were deeply reliant on guidance from the Holy Spirit and testimonies of those who personally knew Jesus. Instructed by these, they sought to answer tough questions, not the least of which included determining whether or not followers of Jesus must necessarily be Jewish. And as we foreshadowed already, this question was paramount to the Jerusalem Council because of Judaism's mandate of circumcision. Secondly, in its infancy and into the coming centuries, what has become known to us as Christianity 
was not a distinct religion, but rather a sect of Judaism, one of many including the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, and others. This is similar to the birth of Protestantism. Although Martin Luther's 95 Theses were published in 1517, he and those who agreed with his convictions were still Roman Catholic, thought of themselves as Catholic. There were no two religions, only different groups within the one religion that had competing opinions on where the church should be headed. As there are always such competing opinions in every religion, every Christian denomination, every parish or functional unit. You see, it was not until the Edict of Worms in 1521, more than three years since his theses, that Martin Luther was officially declared an outlaw, thus marking the true beginnings of Protestantism and Lutheranism. Until then, Luther and his supporters were just one faction of the greater Roman Catholic Church. Similarly, those who followed the teachings of Rabbi Jesus were in those early decades, no more than adherence to a new interpretation of Judaism, one school of thought within the larger religion, their vision for the next evolution of Judaism, as given by Jesus and the understanding of his followers. There were many such rabbis and congregations in those days. One of the peculiarities of this Jesus-following sect, one of many strong points of contrast between it and other factions of Judaism, was their openness and invitation to Gentiles, that is, to non-Jews. We see this beginning when Peter baptized Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and his entire household. We see it when he had a vision wherein God told him that no food made clean by the Lord is unclean any longer. We see this in Paul's vocation to bring the gospel to Gentiles, in the makeup of the churches he founded, in the fact that for nearly every Jewish metaphor in his epistles, there is a Gentile one, and vice versa. In fact, it goes back farther, to Jesus himself, who invited a Samaritan woman, a non-Jew, to drink the water of life. Thoroughly composed of both Jews and Gentiles, the church became, as it ought to be, an eclectic gathering. But where there is diversity, there is conflict. Where there are new philosophies, there are disparate interpretations there too. Some Christ followers from Judaism insisted that everyone follow the concomitant practices of that ancient religion. On the other hand, those from Gentile backgrounds insisted that such practices were unnecessary. But how indeed could a person conceive of adopting Judaism, that is the Christian sect of it, while resisting conversion to Judaism? It's like asking to be Presbyterian, but not Christian. Such a statement in those days simply didn't make sense. Follow the Torah of Moses, said some Jewish Christians to some Gentile Christians, and perhaps the Gentiles would have. But there was one precept that received particularly vehement pushback. I'll eat kosher, keep Sabbath, wear the clothes you wear. But at circumcision, I draw the line. Having no comparable precedents to draw conclusions on such fundamental and far-reaching theological questions, the elders of the church were summoned to work through the question and rule with authority. Do or do not Christ followers need to abide the historical mandates of Judaism? Indeed, must Christ-following males 
be circumcised. It takes no great stretch of the imagination to understand why circumcision was a deal-breaker requirement for many Gentile would-be Christ followers. But perhaps it takes a Jewish perspective to understand why the issue was so important to those who insisted upon it. Nearly all of us are familiar with the idea that the Ten Commandments entered the world through Moses. This happened shortly after the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. But not long after the advent of the Decalogue, the infant nation of Israel was also introduced to a whole host of other teachings that are summarized in the latter half of the Torah, in books like Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then over time, other religious regulations were additionally established to prevent inadvertently breaking a commandment. To give one example, it is well known that one of the kosher ordinances prohibits consuming meat and dairy together. But this isn't explicitly stated in the Torah. Rather, this mitzvah comes from a line in the Bible that appears twice in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. The line is, Do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. What happened was that, over time, as the sages debated this verse, they concluded that the best practice to ensure that a kid is not cooked in its mother's milk, whatever that exactly means, is to separate meat and dairy altogether. So now we ask about circumcision. Does it arise from the Ten Commandments? One of the 613 total commandments derived from traditional interpretation of the Torah, or perhaps as an extrapolation of one of those? Verily I say to you, it is none of the above. Circumcision predates Moses. Indeed, it is on the very cusp of predating Judaism itself. It began with the patriarch himself. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk in my ways and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between you and me, and I will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God spoke to him further. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations, and you shall no longer be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fertile, and make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. I will maintain my covenant between me and you and your offspring to come as an everlasting covenant throughout the ages, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will assign the land you sojourn in to you and your offspring to come, all the lands of Canaan, as an everlasting holding. I will be their God. At this encounter, the Lord begins to establish a covenant with Abraham, Abram. The Lord has pledged to do the following, to provide offspring that will grow into not just a family, not just a nation, but a multitude of nations, to give them the land of Canaan in which Abraham was living, and to be with them as their God for all time. Then, Abraham's obligations are expounded. God further said to Abraham, As for you and your offspring to come throughout the ages, you shall keep my covenant. 
This is what you and your offspring shall do. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and that shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you, marked in your flesh as an everlasting pact. And if any male who is uncircumcised fails to circumcise himself, then that person shall be cut off from his kin. He has broken my covenant. Not that any of God's commands are small matters, but for argument's sake, circumcision is not just another one of the things to do. It is the thing to do. Circumcision was the original commandment given to Abraham by God to be nothing less than the seal of God upon the people of God. And if a man failed to abide that covenant seal, then he was rejected from the covenant. This, then, is the importance of circumcision. For the Jewish-born members of the early church, circumcision, understandably, was a must. Regulations concerning food, drink, clothing, how to worship, and the rest of it, perhaps those could be debated. But circumcision was the seal of God's covenant. There was simply no other explanation, interpretation, or way around it. Even if one tried to claim that Jesus fulfilled the law given by Moses, rendering its regulations moot, well, circumcision predated the law. What more can be said on the matter? Returning again to 50 AD or thereabouts, what was the council's verdict? Do followers of Jesus need to be circumcised? And more generally, do they need to keep any Jewish laws? These questions in mind, the leaders of the church met at Jerusalem. After much debate, Peter, one of the original twelve disciples, arose and told his fellows that he himself had preached to Gentiles and seen the Holy Spirit move through them, the Holy Spirit having made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. This, Peter asserted, was surely proof that the hearts of those Gentile followers had been purified through faith. So he asked, why would you, who insist on Jewish rules, burden these believers by asking them to adhere to standards that not even the Jews have been able to keep? Rather, is it not our belief that they are saved not by obedience to law, but by grace? When Peter had finished speaking, the elders then listened with rapt attention to Paul and Barnabas, who, in agreement with Peter's conclusion, testified that they too had seen great signs and wonders worked through Gentiles. Finally, James explained how God's inclusion of Gentiles was well in keeping with what the prophet Amos had said. His proposal was to give the Gentiles these instructions only. We burden you with nothing save these three. Abstain from food associated with idol worship. Abstain from food that has been prepared in ways offensive to your Jewish-born counterparts and abstain from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these. Thus, the elders ruled, No, a Christian convert does not need to be circumcised. Furthermore, such proselytes do not need to follow any Jewish laws. Indeed, neither those of Gentile heritage, nor even those of Jewish heritage. The covenant between God and people has changed. The law no longer carries any justification before the Lord, Keeping it will not save you, neither will breaking it condemn you. Nevertheless, this is no excuse for spite or for lasciviousness. In the end, though, 
Salvation comes through grace alone. One interpretation of the Torah, including the Ten Commandments, the 613 mitzvot, circumcision, is that the careful following of its prescriptions is the route to keeping covenant with God. If that's the case, then humanity is in a bad spot, because who could ever keep God's law? Consider John Calvin's understanding that Christianity includes the total depravity of all people, a sentiment that James Madison in Federalist 51 would summarize like this, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Forsooth, even Peter at the Jerusalem Council admitted that history demonstrated mankind's inability to keep such laws. And as we discussed two episodes ago in Don't Sell Yourself Short, upon transgression of the law, with what can one possibly repay God? Nothing, for we possess no gift equal to our own expiation or atonement. And yet, the followers of Christ believe that Jesus did keep the Torah, that he did perfectly live out God's instructions, not only superficial ones concerning food or clothes or contracts, but even the foundational commands to be just, merciful, compassionate, generous, and the like, all of which are predicated on only two commandments, love God and love people. Against these, Jesus had no demerit, no infraction, no misdemeanor. He abided these perfectly, and thus was pure. But he did not hold on to that purity. He exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness, giving to us the emoluments that were rightly his, set justification under the law, so that we were absolved whereas he was condemned. And this produced a twofold outcome. First, that the Lord accepted the sacrifice of Jesus and elevated him to even the right hand of God. Second, that Jesus' merit, his salvation derived from keeping God's commandments, would become available to any and all who believe that Jesus made it possible. And this still applies today, as it will until at least the end of the age. Joining the congregation of Jesus requires no more than acceptance of the difficult, humbling proposition that it is not who you are, but what Christ did. Not what you do, but who Jesus is. As Paul phrased it, saved by grace through faith, not from ourselves, but God's gift to us. Now, if the commands of the law and the prophets existed, that someone might actually do those things as they're described, that is, if it was designed to be fulfilled, then when Jesus finally kept it, what next? Well, it was now perfected, that is, done through to completion. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. The purpose that the law and prophets had served were now, because of Jesus, fulfilled. Therefore, they could be put aside. Not that Jesus destroyed the law, or negated it, or reimagined it, or ignored it. No, rather, he lived by the law fully, and in doing so, accomplished the purpose for which it existed in the first place. 
Jesus fulfilled the law, completed it, resolved it. Therefore, he allowed humanity to level up, as it were, and begin its next chapter. Think of this like graduating from school. Fulfilling one's graduation requirements does not mean that those requirements were wrong or without purpose, but having completed them, one can move on and commence with the next phase of life, hence the ceremony of commencement. Or think of it like training for a race, and then finally running that race. Does this mean that your training plan had no purpose? No, it's just the opposite. The training plan got you to your goal, but now, having crossed the finish line, it is no longer needed, thus it can be put aside, resolved, filed as completed, designated, mission accomplished. Do your former curricula and training logs contain good references, good practices, good principles? Yes. Were they needed at the time? Yes. But now, have they served their purpose and are complete? Yes. This is what happened with the Jewish law. Did it expound useful principles? Yes. Was it necessary then? Yes. But is it necessary now? No. And that's because Jesus completed the law, brought it to fruition, and initiated a new way to be justified before God. In the days of the law, it was to keep the law. But in the days of Christ, in which we now are living, it is to believe in Jesus. Hence, the Jerusalem Council decreed that you can keep the law if you want to, if it makes you happy, hopes you stay on the straight and narrow, then by all means follow its teachings. But do not for an instant mistake it for Jesus, or believe that following it, even to the least tittle, will save you. Salvation comes from one place and one place only, the grace of God. Do not therefore trouble the Gentiles, said Peter. The law is complete. They will now be justified only by faith in Jesus. Now, the most important disclaimer to this is that the retiring of old Jewish law does not institute a free-for-all. Paul stressed this point repeatedly to the early gatherings. To the Romans, he said, Should we sin all the more so that grace can abound all the more? Of course not, that's absurd. If we have died to sin, then how can we go on living in it? And to the Corinthians, he said, All things are lawful, it is true, but not all things are helpful. Yes, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let us not do things for ourselves, but only what is good for others. In a narrow context, the story of the Jerusalem Council is a story about how the early church decided that Gentiles entering into Christianity did not need to be circumcised. From a grander perspective, however, it affirmed fundamental yet novel theological propositions that were integral to understanding Jesus and his new movement, including how many former religious paradigms became obsolete when Jesus finished his work. Christianity begins brand new, no longer bound by the past. Verily, there is a new way to interact with God. Jesus is our mediator and savior. We no longer need to offer sacrifices at a holy site. Males do not need circumcision. Females do not need to be diffident or act like subordinate members of the church. 
leaders needn't have a certain pedigree, for anyone filled with the Holy Spirit can answer that calling. Prospective Follower of Christ You do not need to worship in a certain way, or read a particular text or version thereof. You do not need to dress a certain way, or eat or abstain from certain foods. These things are not the heart of the issue. They ought not even be on the periphery. The Jerusalem Council was summoned because some members of the church had been telling others that they needed to act and behave in a certain way. The ruling was, How dare that type of thinking be propagated? Followers of Jesus are saved by grace through faith not through works or the keeping of the law, lest anyone have cause to boast. The door is open to all, and there are no requirements to fulfill before crossing the threshold. Stories of Symmetry also is open to everyone and anyone who wants to participate. If you know someone who you think would benefit from this podcast, then please don't hesitate to share it with them. Consider inviting them to listen with you when the next episode comes out in two weeks. You can even reach strangers across the world by following, liking, and sharing us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories of Symmetry. Don't forget also that you can find blogs, episodes, and more at storiesofsymmetry.com. Go with God. Go in peace.